So friends, we are continuing today in our series, the book of Genesis, and we are currently at the last part of Genesis chapter 3. And let me just sum up what we've seen so far. We've seen that in the beginning, this whole world was made perfectly by God, right? He's given us everything that we need. It started out great. Um, We're in perfect communion with each other, with Him, right? But you guys know the story. We messed it up. We disobeyed God. We ate the fruit, right? And because of that now, this passage tells us today, everything broke. Everything broke. See, when we think of sin, I think most of the time, what we think is that sin is the reason as to why my relationship with God broke, which is true. But what our, what our passage will tell us today is that sin's actually the reason why everything broke, not just our relationship with God, <clears throat> but our relationship with the rest of creation. Sin in other words, is the reason why most days you feel like the world is against you. You know those days when you wake up in the morning and you feel like you're in a less than ideal marriage and then you go to work at a less than ideal job with less than ideal problems and then you go home to less than ideal chaotic children So you're stressed out and you desperately want to just release some stress. So you go to the gym and you lift your weights only to realize that you live inside of a less than ideal body. And you go, life, (laughs) you know, you're just, you're upset. Everything's against you. And that's just the normal kinds of pains of the world. Not to mention the other kinds, earthquakes, pandemics, natural disasters, wars, pretty much everything that we've experienced the past three years. Our passage is telling us it's all because of sin. That's why this is a mess. And if you want to survive this mess, you know what you do? We all do this. We come up with answers to three fundamental questions. We all speculate on the why, the how, and the out. The why, the how, and the out. We all speculate why things are the way they are. We have answers to that. We all speculate how we're going to escape it, and we all hold on to the hope that one day there's an out. One day it'll all be over. The why, the how, and the out. Whether we realize it or not, we have proposed answers to those questions. Whether you're religious or not, it doesn't matter. We have it. We come up with it. Why? Because it's a survival need. (laughs) In order to survive, we need to have answers to these questions. Why? Because we can handle pain, okay? You can do that. You have done that. But meaningless pain that potentially has no end date. See, that's unbearable. That's too much. So what do we do? We come up with answers to these questions. And our passage today, what's happening is God's giving us his answers to these questions. Answers that the Bible claim is much more effective in helping us get through this pain, get through this mess, compared to all the other proposals out there. Okay? That's the offer here in Genesis, at the end of Genesis chapter 3. What is God's answer to these three fundamental questions? Well, let's get into it. This is God's word. Take from Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 to 24, of what happened after mankind disobeyed God and ate the fruit. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. 
Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat of it, curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thus says the Lord. There's three things, at least, we see here about how to handle the pains of the world, about the pains of the world. First, we see an explanation for it. Second, we see a glimmer of hope through it. And third, we see God's unexpected way out of it. Three things, an explanation for it, a glimmer of hope through it, and God's unexpected way out of it. Let's talk about the first point, an explanation for it. Now, imagine... Someone hits your car, just tail ends you from the back, right? And your car is heavily damaged. What do you ask them? You probably would ask, how that happened, right? What, what happened? Now, why do you ask that question? You know that the answer to that question won't fully satisfy your pain and your anger, but you asked it anyways. Why? Because although it won't fully satisfy your pain and your anger, it's at least a start, it's at least a start, right? At least we know why. And that's all I'm promising you with this first point. As we take a look at the why, the world's so damaged, this won't totally relieve you from, from your woes, but it's a start, okay? This is how it happened. This is how the world broke. Because you've done this, God told the serpent in verse 14, because you've done this, done what? Well, if you read the previous passage, the serpent, Satan, uh, it tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God and sinned. Because you've done this, God said, sin, that broke everything. It didn't break only my relationship with mankind. It broke everything. Everything. Where, where in the passage do we see everything? Well, let's go to verse 16. There's a first thing broke mentioned there. We see now that the process of childbearing broke. That's what it says, right? In pain, you shall bring forth children, God tells Eve here. Giving birth is really painful now. So I've been told. And this includes child rearing as well, by the way. Raising kids will be really hard now. That one I know firsthand. That broke. Second thing that broke, look at verse 16 again. Marriage broke. To the woman, he said, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So Genesis 2, they were naked and unashamed, right? This was the picture. They're one. They're vulnerable. They're trusting one another. Now Genesis 3, rule over you, contrary desires, you see. Marriage broke. That's why marriage is hard now. Third, work broke. Look at verse 18. 
it says this, you're going to work the ground, Adam. You're going to work really hard. By the sweat of your face, you shall look for bread. But you know what you're going to get in return? Thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles, it says. You ever wonder why? The return of investment that you receive in a particular days of work is more often than not disproportionate to the effort that you put in. Thorns and thistles. Fourth, our bodies broke. Look at verse 19. It says, you'll eat bread till you return to the ground. Meaning what? That you'll die now. (laughs) You'll die. You'll return to the ground. Your body, as you grow older, will slowly disintegrate. Your hair is going to fall out. Your, your eyes are going to lose sight. <clears throat> your brain cells will slowly vanish. If you're angry at the fact of why your body's burning less calories now than it was when it was 20, you know who to blame. Adam. <laughs> I mean, us too. <laughs> it's sin. Childbearing broke. Marriage broke. Work broke. Our bodies broke. And lastly, the whole world broke because the ground that's cursed here really refers to the whole earth, right? As far as the ground is found. The whole earth broke. The, you know, that's why we have earthquakes and all these crazy things. It's because we all sinned. That's the, the, the explanation Genesis 3 is offering, okay? A preacher once put it like this. Imagine God's good creation before sin entered the world, okay? It's like the gears of a big clock tower. You know those gears that are operating behind the clock that's making it tick, right? Um, Every gear is on its own axis, rotating, helping the other gears rotate as well, all working in harmony. But then, all of a sudden, the most important gear, called human beings, (laughs) decided, you know what? I don't like my axis. It's too low for me. I want to go higher. I want to go up. So what does this axis, what do we do? What does this gear do? It it unhinges itself from its axis, but far from going up, what happens? It falls down. It falls down and it starts to grind and clash with the other gears that are still spinning because nature's still going as it should be. And what happens to that grinding? The whole system eventually breaks down. All because one gear wanted out of its axis, the whole system's out up in flames. That's what sin did, the Bible claims. It didn't just mess up our personal relationship with God. It destroyed the whole system. And here's the thing. That gear that fell off, it grinds against the whole system, yes, but in turn, now the whole system also grinds against it. Nature is not safe for us anymore. And the pain that we all feel from this grinding That pain isn't just felt physically, is it? We feel it deep in our souls. What do I mean? Take a look at the specific types of of brokenness ascribed to both Adam and Eve here. To Eve, it's specifically childbearing and being a wife. To Adam, it's specifically husbanding, being a husband, and being a provider, a worker. Now, A woman who has difficulty childbearing or a woman who was unable to mother her children well 
or a woman who has issues that causes her to be unable to be loving presence to her husband. The tears produced from these issues isn't just caused by physical pain. The tears caused by these issues is caused by a deeper kind of pain in an existential level, in an identity level. Now, if our modern ears hear this and go, ah, that's sexist to ascribe these things just to women, maybe we could punt and say that in the culture of the original reader back then, those were deeply personal matters to women. That's why they're specifically ascribed to Eve here. But, but either way, the literary point stands that the effects of paradise lost, we feel, is more than just physical pain. The grinding of this world can produce deep, soul-wrenching, existential pain. And it's the same for the man. It's his ability to husband, verse 16 says, and to work or provide bread on the table, verse 19 says. They're cursed. Now, men, let me ask you, if you can't husband well, or if you can't work and provide for your family well, what do you feel? Do you feel merely incompetent as a husband and as a provider? Or do you feel incompetent as a person, as a man? It goes deeper. The, gr- the grinding of this world hurts us, not just in a physical way, in a soul-wrenching way, in an existential way. And every tear that we cry, every burst of anger that we experience, every time we emotionally shut down, that's our soul crying. Make it stop. Make it stop. It's too much. It's too painful. And if we want to have strength to keep going, to endure the physical, existential, emotional pain that this world gives us every single day, we need some kind of hope, some kind of hope to keep going. Well, it leads us to our second point, a glimmer of hope through it. And a glimmer it may be, but it's in here. It's in the text. Look at verse 14. Look at how God addresses Satan. The Lord said to the serpent, cursed are you, you shall eat dust all your life. Now, eating dust here isn't a scientific claim of a serpent's diet, (laughs) okay? It's a saying, right? And Actually, we kind of still even use this saying today. You know, when a, when a boxer gets knocked out, what do we say? We say that they ate the dust. They ate the dust, right? They lost. This is God saying, evil is going to bite the dust. It's going to be humiliated. It's going to eventually lose. There is hope. There is hope pronounced right before the curses, real hope. But how? How is evil going to lose? Go to verse 15. Here's how. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, God tells Satan in verse 15. Between your offspring and her offspring, uh, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, it was widely accepted back then that if your heel was bit by a poisonous snake, you're dead. Like, that's it. You're done for. Okay? So, apparently, the hope is, here's the hope. One day, God promises Eve, your descendant will die. 
But through his death, evil's head will be crushed. And this pain will end. That's the promise. That's the hope. And and the reason why Adam and Eve had the strength to carry on, you know, in this broken world and to move out to this broken world is because they really held on to this hope. This hope is what kept them going, okay? How do we know that? Because look at verse 20. After God cursed everything, right, Adam immediately changed the woman's name to what it says? To Eve. Now, remember, in chapter 2, Eve's name wasn't Eve yet. It was woman or Adama in the Hebrew, right, which means taken out of man. But now, after all the curses is pronounced, after God says this is the hope, Adam immediately changes Eve's name or the woman's name to Eve or Hawa, which means the mother of all living, the mother of the hope of life. Now, why was she named that? Well, because Adam believed in the promise that God gave in verse 15. He really believed that one day, one of Eve's offspring will defeat evil. This is the hope. She is the mother of all of life. This is also why, by the way, when Eve gave birth to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, remember what she said? She said, I got the man. Now, I've been in the delivery room twice when my wife gave birth to our kids, and neither of those times after giving birth did my wife say, I got the man. You know, I got him. (laughs) That doesn't seem like something a woman would say after giving birth. What's Eve saying here? What man did she get? This hope, this could be it. He could be it. You know, and I'll be seeing next week that he wasn't it. But the point is, what kept these two people going, nonetheless, was hope. They had hope. Do you know why? We're not all just completely dysfunctional right now (laughs) because of all the pain of this world. It's because we have hope. We have hope that somehow it'll either lessen or go away. Without that, you and I will give up. We have hope, okay? Hope's not a luxury. Lest we have it, we'll die. There's an interesting book uh, that I heard of. I haven't read it myself, but another pastor talked about it, and it The book is called The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. And the thesis of this book is that, the author claims, if you really want to know a culture, if you really want to get to know a culture, what you want to do is not just learn its language and learn its history. What you want to do is find out what their hope is. What's that culture's hope? What does that culture believe to be the way out from all of this pain? What is that culture's answer to paradise lost? And I've found this quite interesting because in our culture, it seems like, actually, the three things mentioned in our passage today, career, marriage, and children, do they not seem to be the place upon which we place our hopes in? That's our answer for Paradise Found, isn't it? We think if I can just have a successful career, if I get married, and if I have kids. Now, listen, listen, I'm not saying these things are bad. Go get a career. Go get married. Go have children. I, I did. <laughs> these aren't bad things. 
These are good things. But let me tell you, if you think that this is the answer for Paradise Lost, you will be gravely disappointed. Work is a good thing. But it's also, this passage says, a cursed thing. It's cursed. It can't carry the weight of all of our hopes. It's actually the source of a lot of our stress. Marriage. What about marriage? Again, it's a beautiful thing. Oh, but is it not also cursed? (laughs) Don't worry, Tati agrees. It is. It's It's not all that we hope it to be oftentimes. Okay, what about kids? <laughs> what about kids? <laughs> I adore my kids. I adore my kids more than life itself. But it's far from paradise found. It is far from paradise found. And this is perhaps one of the harshest things in the Bible. <laughs> The Bible claims that everything on earth upon which we place our ultimate hope in, it's sinking sand. It's sinking sand. It's not going to hold. Not only are they unable to hold our hopes, but they're actually dangerous because everything here on earth due to our sin is cursed. It's cursed now. They grind against us. Work. Marriage, children, name it, your bodies. It works against us. So what a hopeless passage, we think. You know, what's the answer then? What's the way out? Well, it's surprising. What we'll see at the last part of this passage, the answer actually has less to do about us getting out and has more to do about God getting in. What do I mean? Stick with me here. It's a bit of a mind twister, just how the passage is written. God's unexpected way out. Now, we read on, right? We get to this part of the story, and it seems that we've reached rock bottom, right? After cursing the world, God kicks Adam and Eve out of Eden. Eastward, it says. And in case that wasn't enough, God covers this one and only east entrance gate with a cherubim or an angel, it says. And this angel is carrying and swinging a flaming sword. And we read the story and it's like, well, you know, I guess that's that. We're kicked out and God put an angel there with a lightsaber. Like, we're not getting in. There's no hope. You know, and of course all this is Historical narrative with a touch of poetry. The point is, we're not getting through that cherubim. We're not getting back in. We're stuck in paradise loss. This is rock bottom. But if you were an Israelite back then, reading this passage, you actually won't be so hopeless. Why not? Because you'll notice something very peculiar about the way Adam and Eve was banished. You'll notice that Adam and Eve's banished out of Eden here it sounds very, very similar and analogous to the Old Testament temple structure. The last three verses of Genesis chapter 3 is all temple language, and this is, this is really important. Let me just explain how it's temple language. First of all, 
Do you know which direction God told the temple gate to face, Ezekiel says, when Israelite made the temple? It had to face eastward. Both the gate into Eden and the gate back into the temple both faced eastward. And second, whose presence was in the center of this temple? As also in the center of the garden, in the Holy of Holies. It is God's presence that we are trying to get to from this eastward gate. And third, when you enter the temple, you go through a room that's called the Holy of Holies, covered by this thick veil, and you know what you'll find there behind the veil? You will find two carved out figures guarding the ark of God's presence. Carved out figures of what? Of cherubim, protecting God's presence. And if you fast forward to the New Testament temple, these cherubims would no longer be carved out, but embroidered on the thick veil itself that covers the Holy of Holies. You see the connection? So imagine this. You're an Israelite back then, and you're reading about Adam and Eve's banishment out of Eden, and you start to think of yourself of the temple structure, and what do you, what do you say? You go, ah, this must be it. The temple, the temple is the answer. The temple is my way out. If I can just get back in eastward, right, from the east gate, past the veil, past the cherubim, then, then I'll find the answer to paradise lost. So guess what some of them did? They rushed into the temple, and guess what happened to them once they got in? They did not find an out. It's the opposite. They actually died. <laughs> On the spot, the Old Testament says. Read the Old Testament. Only the high priest can enter, it says. And at certain times of the year, and many died trying. Why they die? Because of sin and because the cherubim's still there, so to speak. You can't get back in. Sin does not allow us to get back in. And I wonder if the disappointment that they felt back then is similar to the disappointment that we might feel when our way outs fail us today. When we go all in, into our marriages and our career and our family, and that's just to name the three that's here, but whatever else it is that you think is your out, you go all in and then it proves to be insufficient and your heart whispers, this isn't an out at all. This isn't an out. The curse is still here. This isn't our way back in. The primordial question at the end of Genesis chapter three remains, how do we get rid of the cherubim? And that question was never answered until a man came to earth named Jesus and he died on a cross. And interesting, isn't it? Do you remember what happened when Jesus died in Matthew chapter 27? What happened to the cherubim embroidered veil that was covering the Holy of Holies in the New Testament temple, what happened to it? It was torn in two. The cherubim was torn in two. The temple can't do it. Your career won't do it. Your spouse and your kids won't do it. The only way to rid the gate of this cherubim, the Bible says, is through the blood of Christ. Jesus, you know what he did? On the cross, Jesus threw himself into the flaming sword of God's wrath, covering Eden's gate. 
and he gave you an out. He gave us a way out, but here it is. He did something much more. He didn't just give us an out. He gave way for God to get in. What do I mean? This is so important. In the New Testament, if you follow this temple theme, what does it say about the temple? That now because Jesus died on the cross, what? what we can get into the temple? No, 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 no. It's much greater than that. Because Jesus died, who's called the temple now? Believers, Christians. Upon, upon what or whom does the Spirit of God now reside? No longer the physical temple, but inside all of us who's received and accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it says. We're the temple of God now. You know what this means? This means that Jesus died not only so that we can have a way out from this world, he died so that God can have a way into our hearts. We're the temple. And this is so, so important because, listen, if all you think Jesus did on the cross was make a way for us to escape this broken world back to Eden, then all you're going to be able to do is tolerate this broken world. You're going to tolerate it till you die, (laughs) right? Can't wait to get out. We'll say, thank you, Jesus, for giving us a way out. However, if you believe that on the cross, Jesus didn't only make a way for you to get to Eden, but he also made a way for Eden to get into you, then you know what you have the power to do. You'll have the power not just to tolerate this broken world, but you'll have the power to be a redeeming presence in it. So when you experience the world grinding against you, when your marriage is painful, when work is hard, when your family is is failing you. The Christian doesn't just go, oh, I can't wait till I'm out. I can't wait till I get to heaven. No. The Christian realizes that heaven's already in them, that God's spirit resides in them, that they are the garden temple. You're not just meant to wait till you get to Eden. You're meant to bring Eden out of earth to be an agent of redemption. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're called not to just wallow in the brokenness till we get to Eden. We're called to be an Edenic presence here on earth. That's what the cross has done. Didn't just give us a way out. It gave God a way in. Yet still, despite all that power, despite the spirit of God in us, we all know that in this broken world, there are some kinds of brokenness that we can't redeem, no matter how hard we try. There's physical ailment, there's biological conditions, there's earthquakes, there's pandemics, death of loved ones, just to name a few. And in those moments, what the cross does is it also reminds us that our hope is not found in anything here. As beautiful as this world is, it's cursed. It's broken. No career, nor spouse, no child on earth can bring you paradise. The only one who can do that is the offspring of Eve whose death has crushed evil's head. It's only him. So, as we mourn the brokenness of paradise lost on this side of eternity, 
First Thessalonians chapter 4 says, mourn. It should be mourn. But don't mourn as those who have no hope. You have hope. In Christ, you have a future hope of Eden. But on top of that, also within you resides the essence of Eden himself. So tread through this broken world, empowered by that truth, glorifying the Lord. And when the time comes for you to return back to dust, because it will from dust to dust, approach Eden's gate, covered not by your own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ, who's died for your sins on his cross. This gospel, this worldview, if you take this out to the real world, you approach the grinding of this world with that, what it's going to do, it's going to give you hope. It's going to help you put one foot in front of the other, even through all the pain, even when the world's raging against you. Everything else is sinking sand. Will you do this? Will you receive it? Will you believe it? Not just for the glory of our God, but for your own sake out there in this cursed world. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we realize that all this is our fault. You've created the world perfect. You've created the world without sin or flaw, but yet because we want it out of our own axis, we destroyed the whole system. And it's grinding against us. But in your mercy, you did not leave us to our own demise. Now, though our friendships fail us, our love, romantic pursuits fail us, our careers fail us, our bodies fail us, our own wills fail us, you will not. You have promised to hold on to your children, and the gates of hell will have nothing on you. The gates of hell will not destroy your church, you promised. It will not take us away from the gates of Eden. For those upon whom you've had mercy, too. I pray, Father, that your spirit makes this gospel offer real, not just in the minds of those who are here, but also in in their hearts. Give us a hope that is not sinking sand. Give us a hope that will truly lead us to that day when we'll see you again face to face. Until then, help us live faithfully for you and not for the hopes, the false hopes of this world, as beautiful as they are, cursed they are too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.